Welcome to the Rumpus Room. Hey, everybody. How's it going out there? It's the boys from the Midwest back kicking it here in the Rumpus Room. And let's hit them with the takeaway message of the day. I've been reading about discovery and the invention of things. And I there's this, this realization that I came to that, you know, specifically for me in my own work, that when you invent something or when you're on this kind of invention track, what you set out to get usually isn't what you get. You know, I mean, these, these massive discoveries that have changed the course of humanity aren't really some way, somebody that's sitting up in an ivory tower saying, I want to discover the internet. It just kind of happens or like, like penicillin, for example, it just happened in the event of trying to discover you know, something. So, you know, in my business and work, that was, uh, that was really a big deal is I went down this one track and trying to, trying to create value in an area where I knew there was value and it ended up not being the solution that I, uh, the solution that we are, the company product we came up with is, it's very different than what we set out to accomplish. So, you know, that's something that I've been thinking about lately. And <clears throat> I think just staying the kind of the takeaway messages is staying, staying open and aware to that kind of discovery process and just trying to solve a problem rather than having a, you know, fully, fully baked solution in mind and being open to that kind of change and fluidity. So that's something I think is really valuable. And, you know, it's benefited me a number of times. And the more open I find myself being during this process, the more creative the solution I think ends up being invaluable. Yeah. It also um, signals, you know, the, that kind of methodology or that statement that people are always like, you know, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Um, because you guys are solving the problem you initially set out to solve though. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. So, um, yeah, I think that's a, a critical, um, certainly it, it makes a lot of sense in innovation in a business because, um, you know, you're not beholden to the things that have already been done or been built. So it talks about like your ability to build off of things and be dynamic and successful and flexible. And, um, the number one indicating factor of whether or not a startup is going to be successful is timing. Uh, and, and then what that also gives you is, you know, more kind of flexibility to respond to the market needs as opposed to like trying to ram a solution that may not necessarily be the most appropriate application of, uh, of whatever it is. And um, yeah, I, I think that's a great, uh, a great, uh, a great idea. What book was that from? So that was from Black Swan. That was part of it in the Black Swan. Was sure. one of the chapters was on you know, the ability to predict isn't, we, we all overestimate our ability to predict things in the future. And we, we rationalize uh, things that have happened in the past and, you know, the, the common theme, and it's a really great book, which, which identifies these kind of unknown, unknown events are very, like really shape the, the trajectory of how we do business. So, you know, like the quarterly predictions, you know, when you look at them over time, they're, they're going to fail at some point, 
<laughs> so, you know, it's hard to predict and it's hard to analyze with numbers, a lot of these things. And so that, that the point was that I, I kind of took away, was, you know, look at these inventions that have caused, you know, pharmaceuticals to kind of go like Viagra that basically like created. And that was something that just kind of got discovered. And it really wasn't like some, some uh, scientist was out there. Like, I want to discover Viagra or the, <laughs> yeah. the, the 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 problem the 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 need out there's a big need out there um but it just kind of came about and that was like you know changed the entire trajectory of the company and oh my god can you imagine being in those sessions where you're researching some drug and you're talking with the individuals about the side effects and one after the other guy comes in and it's just like man i just got an absolute rock hard all the time oh man <laughs> well and the funny thing is so i've read the story is very entertaining because the men didn't want to give the pills back you know like <laughs> the the study concluded and they're like no i don't i i want to keep them <laughs> Yeah. That's a good sign of a product that is going to have staying power. Um, exactly. Like, no, there's some other benefits that I, I'm going to keep them. I'll just keep the rest. Cause you yeah. know, they're supposed to return. Don't forget them about it. Think, no, nope. You know what? If you have any extras, you might as well send them my way anyways. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I know the drug doesn't work for, I think it was like a blood pressure, some type of, you know, uh, cardio, cardio, uh, um, project and uh, yeah, ended up with a different benefit. So it's just funny how that, that all works out And the black swan, I think example, which, you know, I would recommend reading the black swan to anybody that's listening. I think it's a really good book. Uh, it puts into perspective. What, what do we really know? And what do we not know? And uh, you know, I know you read that too, Adam, what did you, did you take anything out of that? Yeah. One of the big things for me was the, um, reliance on previous events as a um, kind of logical fallacy as far as being a predictor of future things. And coronavirus is just like the most obvious example you could possibly come up with because obviously this, you know, unforeseen event drastically changes the course of our existence. And I think the black swan was like, we overestimate our ability to be predictive because history occurred this way mm -hmm. or history occurred a certain way. So um, like the previous, you know, kind of like dispelling the myth that like we can really use the past to predict the future reliably, which anybody right now would have no challenge with accepting that idea given the last year that we've had, but apparently before, um, it was is quite revolutionary in the mathematics community, and uh, I actually heard about the book from a buddy of mine who's uh, <clears throat> who's an actuary, and he was talking about it's the how he was kind of making waves in the actuary community because the actuary community obviously has a, you know, they get paid on to predict the future, really predict medical spend, <laughs> and um, uh, one another interesting kind of factor is when coronavirus started popping off. Um, this friend of mine said that he's seen estimates in the United States close to 600,000 deaths overall. And when I heard that figure back in April or March of last year, I was just like, oh, my God, there's no way. 
And yeah, when it was at like 20,000 or whatever, you know, yeah, at the beginning. And I, I, I recall looking at this figure a couple weeks ago and it was 450,000 and um, I should try and find it right now. Cause I think that 600,000 estimate is pretty damn accurate. Was that in the U S in the U S looking it up all time 571,000 571 so we're almost there almost there so that 600,000 estimate just I think speaks to um, the amazing ability of mathematics to be accurate but obviously when people were making their bids for the this year nobody was factoring factoring in the coronavirus. So that's why this was the most 2020 was the most successful year for any insurance company, because on average, they were probably saving about 25% of their medical spend. So it's kind of remarkable to think that during a global pandemic, it would be the most profitable year in the history of mankind for insurance. Why yep. the F is that the case? Yeah, a, a, <laughs> that, a medical condition that is you know, quote, kind of killing people is, is having this type of devastating effect actually makes these insurance companies more money. It's like, you know, it's like the opposite of a, when a hurricane strikes the, you know, company like the, the uh, property insurance companies do terribly because they have to pay all these things out. <laughs> not that's not how this has worked. Nope. But it shows you about how, kind of nuts the american medical system is if um you know well i mean nobody was receiving services nobody was consuming it shows you where the costs come from yep you know it shows you where where does the united states spend on our medical spend well it's not you know communicable diseases that people are you know in the hospital for where there's not enough room, you know, cause I remember at the beginning of the coronaviruses, the big problem was we're not going to have enough beds for people. You know, we're, we're going to be overflowed. That was the whole kind of mass thing. And you know, the insurance companies make all this money. It just shows you what those beds are used for and what we're, we're getting treated for. Um, yeah. And, and then you got countries like India right now who are in the throes of like, going through that bed shortage and, you know, having a stress on hospital supply. So I think it is pretty remarkable that the United States was able to avoid that sort of hospital shortage on a relatively large scale. Um, I mean, New York was essentially the only place that had that type of hospital bed shortage. It was way overblown. I mean, my buddy was on the USS or my buddy is a Navy helicopter pilot and he was all excited to go on the HMS Comfort up the coast from um, uh, Norfolk Bay or Norfolk, Virginia into uh, downtown New York City because that was one of the responses was to take a Navy hospital ship into the harbor. And um, it ended up not necessarily being needed, which is great. Um, but it's it's remarkable to have that sort of infrastructure to mobilize. And I saw it firsthand what hospitals were doing to create capacity to avoid um, having this hospital bed shortage. And, um, you know, we're lucky in Minnesota that we never really got there. There was like one point, I believe, in November where we were kind of 
encroaching on like full capacity, which is ironic because hospitals typically want to be at full capacity. They work very hard to have like 80% of their beds or 85% of their beds filled all the time, <laughs> you know, as opposed oh, to yeah. being nervous when they start to get full. Um, but yeah, it was just a weird, it was a wacky year to be in healthcare. And if you want to see the impacts, you can look at Humana's stock price because Humana had just a banger year. And, um, in 2020 and uh they're kind of a pure insurance company like uhg or some of the other companies have more healthcare infrastructure but humana i believe does not have as much and so their stock price i believe it doubled or something like that i mean it's just remarkable it's no GameStop, you know but uh it yeah. was it was it was uh it was pretty remarkable to watch that um all play out i mean obviously nobody was predicting coronavirus but uh something to be considered in the future. Um, my, I went uh, to the driving range yesterday with um, our other brother and he just asked me, he was like, you know, what do you think it would be like to be a college student these days? Um, and I, cause we had, we were at the university of Minnesota course and saw a bunch of college kids there playing. And um, I was just like, well, probably just zoom classes, but then everything else is just about the same. You know, I mean, you know, people yeah, I are think still people are doing social. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. When you, you know, it's, it's probably like, uh, there's a percentage of people that aren't, you know, instead of it being a hundred percent of the people that are out there, you know, doing stuff, it's just, as, you know, the bars aren't as packed or the parties, you know, there's not as many people. I can only, I can't imagine the, uh, conversations between like the people who are trying to save the world and social distance versus the people who are like, not, you know what I mean? You know, I, I think it was such a rebelliousness at that age. Yeah. Such a rebelliousness when you're younger too. I think it was pretty short lived because people just got so sick of having that discussion. Right. Because probably, you know, how, how many times can you go out and be a crusader for public health? you know, and you got people just, you know, going to house parties and whatever. That seems to me like a pressure cooker for a bad situation on a healthcare campus that are becoming increasingly and increasingly and increasingly politically correct. And, um, you know, kind of more uh, liberal in their ideology. Yeah, I, I think this is the this is going to challenge the, I think, political correctness too. Yeah, that that's going to be you know, and we're talking about making predictions, but I think that's a, that's a, it's going to be a sticking point for though the future of those universities is like, how do they navigate that? Yeah. Um, it's complicated. Education overall. I mean, I, I think about as we're about to have a, a young child, I think about like the model of education is drastically being changed because of the availability of online learning. And I think that this, that coronavirus is going to be a huge uh, black swan event for education as far as, you know, children deciding to do fully remote. I mean, mm -hmm. there are, um, I believe I was talking to a teacher where they're allowing, they're having a fully remote um, segment of their school. Um, and I was kind of thinking about like, well, 
I wonder if that's only available to people in the district because perhaps you have to, you know, pay taxes in to get access to that. But what about places that open enroll? Okay. Well, now you've just created like a free market for edu- for online education. I mean, yeah. that's a All big right. deal. Yeah, you could have the in-person or you have the video visits. And instead of it being 20 grand, it's five. You know, you just opened up a whole new, you know, subset of people. I mean, can you imagine if like public education didn't necessarily be reliant on the fact that you live in a particular geography? Like anybody could take schools, could take classes from the best public schools in the state or the nation. I mean, that would just be drastically different than the whole previous notion of like, you know, if you live in an urban area, you're going to be screwed because your education is just not near yeah, bad what teachers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. that could be so, a watershed. I, I, so I've been talking with a couple. So we, we work with schools, school districts. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I was talking with this woman who's very connected uh, at kind of the state level. And they were talking about this, about changing to this concept where, because she said, you know, there's like, let's just say there's like five amazing science teachers in the state. How do we get, how do we basically get them on video and teach a whole group of people and try to expand that model where they're leading and then the science teachers in these different schools are taking direction from these amazing teachers. And she just said that talk about a way to scale uh, great learning and technology. And that brings a whole other host of like, you know, who are the five, you know, there's a lot of other problems, but she just, just saying that could change the way we educate people because it's uh scaling of these really fantastic, because there's some very fantastic teachers that are out there. And there's a huge problem with short shortage of teachers too. That's a huge issue because the pay for teachers is very low. So they're trying to figure out ways to adjust. And, you know, it was good to hear at the public level, they're thinking about it, you know, thinking about it and doing it as two different things. So we'll see where that ends up. But, you know, this, I think you're, I, I agree with you. This is kind of a watershed moment and just get a load of this story. So our neighbor, they live in a, they got three kids. They took a trip during the pandemic uh, for six weeks and they went to Houston during the Houston power crash. Then they decided to go to Florida. They went to Florida. So they just kind of traveled around the way back. They said, screw this. We're doing this full time. So they guy, they are sticking their kids in an RV and are going to educate their kids and drive around the country. And oh. they are all in. And they were talking about, you know, the teacher is going to be the wife. The husband is figuring out work and he works from home full time right now. So he's just trying to navigate that. But they are going to try to see what happens. And I think there's going to be more of this concept because they were, you know, in the guy. I, so we just moved. He's a really nice guy and he's really open. He just says, you know, I just want to try this experience for my kids. Um, I couldn't do that, but uh he is really excited about it and said it's really nerve wracking and they're having like an estate sale to sell all their stuff. I mean, they're going all out on it. Wow. Are they selling Um, their house? They're selling their house. They're putting on the market in a couple, like a week. 
Wow. They've been trying to pre-sell it. They're going all out. They're going to have a storage thing. Yep. His parents are from the Twin Cities. Her parents moved to Florida. So, uh, yeah, they're they're getting a like a pull behind on the, they have a truck. And you know, pretty amazing story, but you know, the way that they're consuming educate education has just totally flipped their mind and they're like, you know, we see our kids as doing good in this model of learning and you know, there's some things that we got to give up, but we kind of want to try it out. So that's an opportunity that would have been around two years ago, you don't even think of doing that. Like, whoa, you are, that's, that's hurtful to these kids. You know, they're not putting them in in in-person learning school, but so that's a, that's a pretty, it was a crazy story from one of our, our neighbors. It is. I um, really enjoy watching these videos on YouTube of people who sail and do that. And there's this one family um, sailing Zatara is what it's called. And I find it just fascinating because they have like, uh, three kids on a boat and they're doing online education. And right now they're sailing and they post these videos as, as their income stream, but you could work remote and theoretically do the same thing. Obviously sailing, you might have a greater difficulty with getting Wi-Fi connection, but, um, uh, that it's, it's fascinating to me because, you know, they go to these absolutely remarkable places in the world that, just a handful of people have ever accessed and um, they show these videos of these just beautiful locations. And um, I think there's going to be a lot more of that. Like you said, like this family, I think coronavirus is going to be something that is just going to make this go from, this is a classic, like cause uh, crossing the chasm type of thing where you've got this long tail of a tiny handful of people who are doing that type of living. Um, And I think now you're going to see quite a bit more people um, making that choice. I don't know what percentage of the population it's going to be. I don't know what percentage of the population it is right now um, that is going to choose to live more of a nomadic life. Uh, It, I, I, It makes me think that, um, you know, getting, I I used to work with this gentleman who talked about his side business, which was an Airbnb. um, And like, he wants to buy houses in markets that are destinations and turn them into Airbnbs. Mm -hmm. Yep. Scottsdale, Moab, Los Angeles. He was like, I want a house in Nashville and in Austin. And, um, (laughs) these places that people want to go uh, and obviously the real estate effects of, you know, investing your earnings back into assets as opposed to being taxed on them is something that he's very attracted in like the, uh, um, the tax implications of real estate, which are very, very beneficial, but um, I I think it's a great business model. He's probably going to make a lot of money doing it because of the fact that like more transient living is becoming a, uh, a more desirable, um, you know, option. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, I think what I've seen is a, like a reshifting of what is normal, you know, what is, what is something that is possible. And I think people are starting to think differently about, what is this, you know, standard 
American life of, I have 2.5 kids. I send my kids to really good school. They go to college, they get jobs. They have to, you know, it's like this standard model where I live in the suburbs. I do, you know, these things. I participate in golf league. I go to church every Sunday. I think people are starting to question this typical routine slowly and, you know, just identify maybe what's, what's, what are they more interested in? And there may be people that want that more nomadic existence where there's a little more excitement um, that way. And some people, you know, want the more of the certainty of, you know, certain aspects of kind of what we've, you know, what America offers. But I do think there's, like you said, there's this kind of expansion into opening up the chasm. And if you ever read any self-help or business book, they're guaranteed there's probably like an 80% chance they'll bring up the four minute mile and Robert and Roger Bannister where he broke it, changed everybody's mindset. Now everybody thinks they can break it. So now there's a lot more people that are training for it and doing it. But I think it's that kind of opening of this is a possibility for this type of thing. So, yeah, I think it's like you said, this is a black swan, like for education specifically. Yeah. And, and housing and, you know, lifestyle. Um, I mean, the remote work thing has already been transformative. Um, and I think this, so um, what I see when I see your neighbor deciding to sell everything and, you know, go on this radically different path, what I see there is, is um, somebody responding to a very authentic thought and desire that they have. And um, I think that's so healthy. And what I was kind of cutting it back to is like saying yes or saying no to life. And um, obviously there's been a lot of negative impact of coronavirus, but um, there have been a lot of positive reactions to the crisis. Like these people deciding to do this thing that they've probably been thinking about for years. It's, this is not a whim, you know, this is a significant lifestyle change that like they're probably well prepared to do. Well, they took that six week vacation. So, you know, it's like, it's within their realm of what they wanted to do. Yep. So yeah, you're right. So, and I, um, I think it's exciting to see people say yes to those like big life changes. And um, I, a close person is thinking about making some changes in, in life, basically. Um, you know, our brother's thinking about, he's got approval to go full remote. And so he was, I was talking to him yesterday and he was like, yeah, um, I can, you know, do whatever I want post September. Um, so I'm thinking about selling my car and getting a Jeep and moving to Colorado. And I was like, wow, that's pretty neat. And then he was like struggling with the, um, that thought pattern, um, and knowing, you know, is this good for me, which is hard because that's a, that's a significant life change to continue to work remote and move to a new city because, you know, you're more interested in the lifestyle of being there. You know, it's close to the mountains a different scene out there um and um i was just thinking about like what 
how to know when those decisions are good decisions. You know, how do you know if selling your house and living on an RV is something that's going to be a good decision? It's really hard to know um, what is going to benefit your life. And um, I was coming up with a kind of simple formula that, um, you know, typically no is comfortable. No is easy. You know, not doing something is, is, uh, and, and it's very valuable to not do something. Sometimes it's important to say no. Um, but how do you know when to say no versus when to say yes? And, um, I don't know if this is a very, this is obviously there's so much more context around, you know, making these decisions, but I feel like if you have been saying a lot of one of them, it's probably a decent time to try the other. You know what I mean? <laughs> like if you've been, you know, saying no for a very long time and, you know, just doing like the same sort of things and all of a sudden you have a yes opportunity, um, it's probably a great thing. Uh, and uh, on, the, on the flip side, if you've been saying yes all of the time to everything, as far as, you know, you know, new job, new place, new relationships, whatever it is, it's probably a good time to try Start saying, saying no. no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think or, that's a, that's really good insight into you know, having the awareness into what you're basically, what is your current mode and how do you shift you know, how do you make a shift um, in that? And I think that's a really good insight into, because I've no, I've had times in my life, I'm just thinking about, you know, what are the decisions that I've made that have been important? Uh, you know, like uh, deciding to move, you know, what's the, what has been the biggest thing? And it's really kind of opening my mind to this opportunity that presented itself, whether it's like, saying yes or saying no. I've had a lot of chances in my life where I've said yes way too many times and I'm too busy and I'm overworked and I'm overstressed and I need to simplify my life. And so saying no more had to be a change that I needed to make so that I could focus and you know provide benefits. But there's time in my life where saying yes got me a lot of amazing opportunities. So yeah, it's just, I think that's a really difficult thing. And it's really hard to give like a blanket answer of like say yes all the time or say no all the time, which I think there's a lot of books that tell you both sides of the coin. There's books that say, say yes to everything and books that say, say no to everything. So yeah, I like, I like that uh, concept of, you know, kind of identifying what you do more of and then try the other thing. I think that's a good, good thing. In, yeah, and I think it's critical to um, also consider the arena within which you're deploying that answer. So, um, you know, it's one thing to continue to do the same thing all of the time and always say yes or always say no. Um, and then, you know, because of that, you go into another arena and you do the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. Um and I think it's a different thing to try the opposite answer to the same question. Mm -hmm. I think that's the real shift that you're talking about. Um, because I know there's a lot of behaviors that are in response to dissatisfaction. So like, you know, if you're saying no all of the time to getting a new job and you continue to go into that job that you hate every day, and then you say yes in other arenas to blow off steam or to, or to compensate, um, 
I think it's just healthy to be aware of like how we are responding to those particular decisions that we make in the arenas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause there's the, I think that that reaction to is a, is a key part of identifying where, you know, what are you frustrated with? So again, it's, it's all, it's very individual, but you know, I think one of the things that I've learned in my life is gaining awareness of like the true frustrations and, you know, what are the decisions that you need to make and being thoughtful and aware and taking as much information in, but you know, that that's a key part. And then just making the decision and going, you know, you gotta, yeah, I think it's good to make a decision and move on. Cause there's a lot of times where you, you don't know 80% of the stuff, you know, you're maybe working with 60% of the information and you're trying to figure out, should I, you know, should I get more information or should I just make the decision? You know, those are, that's another, another thing that um, helps is to, you know, you can act on these things and they're not, you know, you can, you can come back from a lot of decisions too. You know, you can get other jobs and a friend of mine who I, uh, who went to, went to college with, he is becoming an amazing woodworker and he has a job which is in uh, analytics and, you know, data. And so he's doing SQL queries, not super fun work, but he's got this, he's training with this amazing woodworker who is, you know, doing chairs for the owner of the Bellagio. I, I mean, he's doing deal, like doing commissions for these projects that are like kind of at such a high level that it's really even hard to fathom. And he is training my friend and my friend just got a, is going to help him with this project and he's getting a lot of money on. He's like, man, I think I should change. So he quit his job and is now (laughs) planning on doing this furniture business. And he was kind of freaking out. And I talked to him, I'm like, you know what? That's okay. You know, like if you feel you're never going to know a hundred percent. So, you know, it's an interesting, it's interesting to hear about how people navigate these things. And we are, you know, a very, we're, we're survivors as a human species. So, you know, I told him that he'll be fine and he can always go back and get a different job and do whatever. And he's looking at grad school and he just got accepted to do a really good one. So, you know, it's just kind of trusting that life will take you in the right direction and continuing to, you know, move on and be aware. And I think that's, it's really good to hear from him because he was very excited. There was a lot of energy in his voice, (laughs) which is, you know, a good feeling to have is, uh, you know, drive and energy and ambition instead of, you know, being pulled away or pulled down by certain decisions. Yeah. So that's something we talked about is, you know, what is your, what is your energy? What is your energetic sense of this? Like, are you gaining a lot of energy from it or is it pulling it away? And I think say you're saying no to a lot of people all the time and you just feel like you, you know, you're kind of doing the same thing and your energy is going the wrong way. Maybe if you're sensing a positive shift or like a kind of an energetic polar shift in the other direction, that's a good thing to do. So yeah, another way to look at it. Yeah. Um, Another tool I've used to explain or to rationalize making decisions is um, if you are able to explain a decision or rationalize it, typically it's coming from like your logical, rational, analytical self. So 
if you're evaluating a career shift and you're like, well, you know, I should go back to grad school because then I can do this and then I can do that. And then this will happen. And then this will happen. That's coming from an intellectual space. But if you have a thought that can't be explained, you don't know why you want to woodwork. You don't know why you want to move. You don't know why you want to, you know, whatever it is, be with this person, you know, whatever. That's a decision that's coming from a different place. It's not coming Mm -hmm. from a rational place. It's not, it's coming from what some would say, you know, more of a intuitive place or, you know, some people say head versus the heart decision making. Yeah. Subconscious, all these. Yep. A lot of different ways to think of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I have thought that's been a helpful tool for me to make those commitments to things that are particularly difficult to explain and rationalize, but ultimately being, uh, you know, end up being relatively significant life events. Um, and I, I would just encourage people to consider that as a methodology as far as like, you know, entertaining those big decisions, because um we can explain away a lot of really authentic, you know, expressions of ourselves that could be a lot different directions than we perhaps have thought that uh, we would go. And opportunities, you know, what are the, what are the opportunities and yeah, logic, and, logic is hides some opportunity. And that's a great point. And it comes back to that black swan event where we're talking about like, um, you know, any decision that you can logically explain is probably based off of like some previous history that you've been able to piece together in your mind. You've Mm -hmm. observed this particular thing. And so now all of a sudden, like you have the story that you can tell Um, as opposed to the more black swan decisions that end up being probably the bigger life choices, um, you know, or the more significant life events that drive like, either fulfillment or direction or your just just the overall kind of trajectory of your existence. Mhm. Yeah, I mean that's pretty, you know, it's pretty heavy stuff to to think about, but these are I think the real this is kind of what it goes on in my mind a lot. You know, this is really the, some of the things that I struggle with is just like, you know, how do you make these decisions and when do you know it's right and now, this is the type of stuff that keeps me up at night and not, uh, not politics. You know, it's like that. These are the things that <laughs> yeah. I, I love when my friends talk about this stuff with me, you know, I really yeah. like to talk about it and, you know, like, yeah, I understand that the Minnesota twins had a great weekend, you know, and they, you know, there's, Oh, that guy had four home runs and usually he hits three home runs. And it's like, but I, I really like those conversations can get so deep with people and friends that you really no, I love that stuff. And I think we, you know, we are lucky because we've had ski trips where we go into that stuff. Yeah. You know, where we're, you know, you're spending a lot of time with people and you can talk about this stuff. That's really, really impactful. I mean, that's what the rumpus room is for too. So <laughs> rumpus room is all about, uh, and I do think that there's a, a healthy balance of like, you know, making sure you're getting that deep conversation. And then sometimes some people really just, you know, you've had a rough day. All you want to do is talk about something easy, right? As opposed to some of these heavier things. And uh, I think what uh, we hope to do is provide both of that, but certainly fulfill the uh, kind of um, explore self explore self explore exploration or self exploratory aspect of like, 
you know, um, what it means to grow up and be a guy in the world today. And it's going to be really fascinating when we start being dads and start talking about like how that changes us. Holy cripes. Yeah. You're probably going to be hearing it in our voices and our, what we talk about every day. <laughs> yeah. um, I, can already, I can already sense the change in some of my friends too. You know, it's just a couple of our friends have had kids and the, the, the conversations are very different focused on a lot of things. I mean, obviously a lot of them are going to be focused around the child, but have you noticed any, anything in particular associated with, you know, with that? I mean, the, the biggest thing is the, uh, the excitement that they have around talking around their child is there's so much energy and excitement and they, they really, you know, you can just kind of feel that excitement and that's what they're thinking on. And I'll ask them, you know, Hey, how are you doing? Oh, good. How's the, you know, how's the little one doing? Boom, boom, boom. And they just go on and on pictures and da, da, da. And it's like a whole thing. And that's just like a shift away from, you know, we'll talk about work or, you know, you'll talk about other things or, you know, what's plan a ski trip or, you know, whatever it is, or what's plan a golf trip. Not at all. It is like way more child focus, which I think is really healthy and it's fun to see. It's just interesting to notice the kind of the energy behind things. And that's something I've been just laughing about and enjoying and trying to sense, you know, what's, what is, the, how is that shift in me happening? Um, cause yep. I think it, but you know, they, when, once you have a kid, I think it's a, that's a big, a big event, not necessarily a black swan event, but that's a big event. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are black swan children, but, um, uh, planning is also, um, important, you know, um, mm -hmm. it's actually yeah. the, the two largest or the largest indicating factor of whether or not a child will have success in their life is like having a consistent, reliable, dual parent system. Um, mm -hmm. All the research suggests that like, that's the largest impact of whether or not the kid's going to succeed in the world. So um, important to have that as well, uh, have that solid foundation and relationship. So um, uh, another friend of mine just expressed that he's potentially entertaining a divorce. And um, I, Whenever I hear somebody say that, I'm so happy because what, and I know it's a sad thing that they're going through and it's a really hard thing, but um, it's so much better to get a divorce than not get a divorce. I feel like, <laughs> you know, if it's really, if yeah. you're thinking about it, it's one of those things like you might want to say yes to that if the question's being asked, you know? <laughs> yeah, continually asked, you know, it's like if that they're, and I think early is better than later in that sense too, you know, like it's uh, exactly. And yep. I, I think there's, there's a stigma around divorce and a, you know, it's like, Oh, you failed is kind of what I think some of that has been around. And I think, you know, some of that is social conditioning, but I, I do, you know, I've, there's, there's lots of people who are much happier after it. So I think that's, you know, that's a, that's a good reaction. And I think, you know, supporting your friend with what they really want is, you know, that's the best you can do, <laughs> you know, instead of trying to convince them that that's not the right route, you know, just totally. let them explore it, let them explore what that feeling is and be supportive. Yeah. That's, yeah, I think that's a great reaction. 
Yeah. Uh, and obviously it doesn't make the decision any easier, but um, you're right with the support component. So um, mm-hmm. anyway, yeah. we've explored some pretty big topics tonight. I hate to leave on that note, but uh, I think that's all we got for you today in the rump or excuse me. That's all we got for you today, folks. Tune in next week when we'll be back kicking it here in the rumpus room. 